Breeze Ray. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Breezeway, your monthly podcast on comics and whatever else I, your host, Will Nevin, want to talk about. On this month's show, the Alabama special, we'll talk about the cluster mess race to the bottom for the GOP nomination to face U.S. Senator Doug Jones this fall, along with an interview with Alabama's Sidney Duncan, the author behind Dark Horse Comics' Kill Whitey Donovan. And... We'll talk about a proposed piece of legislation percolating in Montgomery that's caught the attention of sentient lump of human shit, Ted Cruz. But as always here on The Breezeway, we start with comics. I miss Southern Bastards. I don't just miss reading it, I miss thinking about it. For someone who lives in the South, who sees the injustice and exploitation festering like an open sore. There's something so very personal about that book. And it's made by two people, writer Jason Aaron, originally from Alabama, and artist Jason Latour, who get what's going on here. So it's just this great, meaningful, insightful thing that's been gone for almost two years now. But it's coming back. As Aaron laid out in a January issue of his newsletter, he sees 2020 as a year of his creator-owned books, and he gave out a general timeline of what's coming this year. First, the second volume of The Goddamned, followed by the second volume of Sea of Stars, followed by the fifth arc of Southern Bastards. The Goddamned has been announced for May, so let's say Sea of Stars later this summer. And maybe Bastards this fall when the leaves turn and the air gets crisp for about five minutes here in Alabama. Is there a chance this gets pushed back further than that? Of course. But I don't care. Making a comic, especially one as good as this one, is a time-consuming effort that requires a lot of free space on a bunch of calendars. These folks are heroes for putting out 20 issues from 2014 to 2018, especially when I can't even put out more than one podcast episode in a month, and I'm still working on my best comics of 2019 piece. That's coming before the end of this year, I promise. If you've never read Bastards, you don't need all of those issues to fall in love with it. Just take the first arc, the four issues in which we're introduced to the fictional Crawl County, Alabama, and the dirty high school football coach who runs it. The arc in which Earl Tubb makes his last stand. Tur- Tubb is like a lot of us, sick of everything that's wrong with Alabama, so sick he leaves and resolves to never come back. But decades later, he returns to Crawl County and he becomes determined to write everything that's wrong. But it's more than one man can fix. The systemic change this place needs will take generations and resources, time, heartache, and sweat. Still, justice will come. That's what we have to believe, and that's what we have to believe as we keep reading Southern Bastards. Before he makes his stand, Earl Tubb says this, quote, This county ain't all bastards. Can't be. 
They just need the courage to stand up and make themselves heard. I could use a bit of courage myself, but I reckon anger will have to do. And stubbornness. God knows we tubs have always had our share of that. That hits me. Deep. So here's to Southern Bastards and its eventual return, whether that's that, whether that's this fall or even later. Even as the nation continues to undergo its Alabamification, where ignorance is praised and hatred cultivated, we aren't all bastards. Can't be. Up next on the Breezeway, a look at the four men vying to be the biggest bastard in Alabama. More after this break. Does this sound like you? If you're feeling tired all the time, moody, sleepy, or even constipated and waning gait, build up of waste, metallic taste in the mouth, or ammonia breath, nausea and vomiting, loss of appetite, not wanting to eat meat or other strong flavors, difficulty concentrating, feeling itchy, and feeling fatigue. Headaches, dizziness, blurry vision, chest pain, palpitations, which is when your heart beats really strangely, or shortness of breath. Making more or less urine than usual. Making urine that is foamy or bubbly. Feeling excess pressure when urinating. Changes in the overall color and appearance of the urine. And blood in the urine, which is usually only detected through a microscope. Hi, I'm Will Nevin, and I'm a doctor. So trust me when I say, if that sounds like you, then you need to go to WMQComics.com. Get yourself checked out. WMQComics.com. You'll make just the right amount of urine. Hello, and welcome back to The Breezeway. Here in our B Block, let's talk about the Alabama Senate race, specifically the race for the Republican nomination to face incumbent Democratic Senator Doug Jones. Let's rewind in time a little bit to talk about how we got here. Obviously, the president, big boy in chief, Donald Trump, selects then Senator Jeff Sessions to be his attorney general, a choice that Mr. Big Boy famously now regrets. That leaves Alabama with a vacancy. We have a special election to find a replacement. The Democrats select Doug Jones, a former federal prosecutor, more or less a centrist, very milk toast sort of candidate, um, but whatever. And the Republicans here in the state nominate Roy Moore, a former Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court and all-around insane person. Around the same time during the campaign, we get a disclosure that uh, Moore has a history of being a sex creep, specifically um, with a practice of asking 
teen girls out on dates when he was uh, in his 30s um, in Gadsden, the Alabama town where he's from. A combination of low turnout and this news of him being a sex creep actually pulls out a victory for Jones, obviously. But now, just a couple of years later, we are faced with the prospect of having not only a regular election to replace him, but an election in a presidential year. So the prospects for Doug Jones to retain his seat are not good. And that makes the GOP nomination all that more important. However, the Republicans aren't exactly fielding uh, an illustrious uh, set of candidates, but it's what we have to work with being in Alabama and all. So let's take a look at some of the recent ads from these various candidates and let's talk about how they are awful. We will at least start with the funniest awful ad, and that comes from the former senator, the former U.S. Attorney General, but still a man who wants you to believe that he's Donald Trump's biggest fan, supporter, and friend. Here is the ad that kicked off Jeff Sessions' quest to retain his seat. Jeff Sessions here. I approve this ad. When I left President Trump's cabinet, did I write a tell-all book? No. Did I go on CNN and attack the president? Nope. Have I said a crossword about our president? Not one time. And I'll tell you why. First, that would be dishonorable. I was there to serve his agenda, not mine. Second, the president's doing a great job for America and Alabama, and he has my strong support. Well, I, well, I. I never had a crossword to say about the president. No, sir. Heavens to, to Murgatroyd. Never. I don't think in the history of political advertising there has ever been an ad that was quite so groveling. Um, if I actually cared about Jeff Sessions, I would say that that was beneath him. But I don't care. Who gives a fuck? He's a piece of shit. So this... Um, this just utter debasement um, of, of his personal dignity is just, it's, it's a little bit delicious to take in. Up next, an ad from uh, current Congressman uh, Bradley Byrne. President Trump's top ally is Republican Bradley Byrne. Work hard, right wrongs, fear God. Those who are our values growing up here and I've always fought for them. When Alabama's two-year colleges were full of corrupt politicians, I drained the swamp and helped put politicians of both parties in jail. Bradley Byrne supports President Trump 97% of the time. He's Alabama's number one pro-Trump fighter. Whether it's building the wall, banning abortion, or confronting Adam Schiff on the impeachment conspiracy to remove President Trump and undo the 2016 election, I'm a proven fighter for the president and I will never allow the radical left to remove him from office. I'm running for Senate because I've spent my life righting wrongs, and Washington is next. A man of God, a pro-Trump Republican, Bradley Byrne for Senate. I'm Bradley Byrne, and I approve this message. 
paid for by Burn for Senate. Now, if I'm listening to that ad, the one question I have in my mind is, So, you mean to tell me you only voted with the president 97% of the time? What the hell are you trying to hide, Bradley Byrne? Now, if we're going to be honest, uh, Byrne is probably the best thing that we can hope for out of these candidates. Um, so, I don't know what that says, but uh, he is your average Alabama Republican, which means he's terrible, uh, but he's not quite as crazy as the rest of these loons. But, you know, again, still terrible. All right, uh, up next... Oh, boy. Alabama's nuttiest uh, entrant into the uh, political uh, arena. Former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, confirmed sex pest. Here is an ad from Roy Moore. I'm Roy Moore, and I approve this message. The same Washington insiders who don't like President Trump are trying to stop our campaign. They just don't like conservatives like us. They call us warmongers for wanting to rebuild the military, racists for securing our borders, bigots for recognizing the sanctity of marriage, and they call us foolish for believing in God. Here's the thing about that Moore ad. His campaign is so broke because, you know, what sane person would donate to a sex creep that has no chance of winning, right? God, I hope no chance of winning. Uh, but he is reusing some of his previous ads, but this the ad that I played for you has this stinger text, like, tacked on the back of it. They, like, they couldn't even get uh, Roy to record something new. But here, here's the stinger text. The truth is out about the 2017 misinformation against Roy Moore. Alabama voters won't be fooled again. I give him points for not calling it fake news, uh, but otherwise, uh, fuck him. Finally, finally, the candidate that probably embarrasses me the most, if there is a candidate that could possibly embarrass me more than Roy Moore, is former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville. I, I can't properly put into words my hatred uh, for Tommy Tuberville because, again, not only is he a former coach of Auburn, uh, not only does he most famously have a consecutive uh, run of wins against Alabama, but he has also gone full fucking Trump in this campaign. And here's a taste of his full fucking Trump. If you could have one do-over as president, what would it be? I would not have appointed Jeff Sessions to be attorney general. I would not have appointed Jeff Sessions to be attorney general. President Trump fires attorney general Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions is out. Jeff Sessions, he is out as the attorney general. President Trump said DC insider Jeff Sessions was a total disaster and an embarrassment to Alabama. It's time for a conservative outsider who will have Trump's back. We've got one guy fighting in Washington, D.C. That's Donald Trump. 
the career and establishment politicians, they have proven they can't get it done in Washington, D.C. Enough is enough. Let's quit sending them up there. I'm not a career politician. I'm really a politician's worst nightmare. I want to help Donald Trump fight the swamp, fight the career politician, fight the guys that have been up there forever, and send somebody with common sense, a fresh set of ideas. I'm not looking for a career. I'm looking to help save this country with Donald J. Trump. So there you have it. There are our candidates here in Alabama for the Republican nomination for Senate. It is real goddamn alien versus predator situation. Whoever wins, we are all going to lose. And the real problem here is the presidential race. God knows what's going to happen nationally with that. Fingers crossed. But here in the state, it's only going to drive turnout. It's only going to make the Republican side of the ledger that much stronger. So we don't even have like the the luxury of hoping for some kind of tactical thing here. Oh, well, maybe if Roy Moore wins a nomination, it'll be like last time and he's going to lose because he's a sex creep. We can't even hope for that because sex creep Roy Moore could be the next senator from Alabama. But we said the same thing about the first election and uh, Jones was able to persevere, uh, persevere. So, oh, we shall see and we shall hope. Coming up next on the breezeway, my interview with Alabama's own Sydney Duncan on her book, Kill Whitey, parentheses, Donovan. That's coming up here on The Breezeway. More after this break. Friends, Will Nevin here for WMQComics.com. Do you remember when things were simpler? Like back when a hard day's work meant something, or when there were only seven or eight Star Wars movies instead of eleven, or when the President of the United States wasn't a stupid racist. At WMQ Comics, we remember those good old days. Like when you could still find really good pornography on Tumblr. At WMQ Comics, we focus on five simple old-fashioned ingredients. News, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. Simple like it was in the good old days when an iPhone could fit comfortably in your pocket. So come on over to the friendly side of comics. Come on over 
Welcome back to the Breezeway. In most of my interviews with creators, artists, writers, fans, etc., I normally think, ah, oh, that's a pretty good interview. I think I did an okay job. I mean, I fucked up here and there, but overall, it was good. And then I just kind of move on. My interview here with Sydney. I'm, I'm struck by the two questions that I did not ask her, and I really hope to get a chance to ask her. The first question is, we talk a little bit in the beginning about her love for comics, and I, I never, ever, ever get to talk about this with anyone, especially if they're creators, and, and I want to. I want to know the comics that inspired her. Uh, when she was younger and reading. So that was one question I, I wish I could have gone back and asked. A second question, and this is my personal curiosity. We talk a lot about her, her air quote, day job and her advocacy and outreach here in Birmingham and how she helps the community through her work with Birmingham AIDS Outreach as an attorney. My question that I wanted to ask, and again, I just, I forgot, uh, was, does she ever see a future where she does more writing and, you know, eases back on, again, air quote, the day job? You know, what's that balance like? Like, what's what's her ideal? Because, I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm struggling with as I record this podcast at two o'clock in the damn morning. But... Of course, that's that's different for everybody, right? And and that was the discussion I wanted to have. Just didn't get around to it in in an hour of talking to her. Anyway, it was a fascinating conversation and and one that I really enjoyed, and I hope you all will enjoy. Uh, we talk about how her book "Kill Whitey" (parentheses Donovan) came together the team behind it, uh, and then where it's going from here. And again, about her air quote day job and what she does for the community here. And then what it's like uh, from her perspective to live in Alabama and work for marginalized communities in the face of all of this, as I gesture wildly at everything going on. So, Without any more of my bullshit introduction, I will turn it over to myself and Sydney. Here we go. All right. Um, so what I figured uh, we could do, and feel free to say no, because uh, you're a guest and you can you can say no to these sure. things. Um, I certainly want to talk about your book. It's It's great and beautiful, and I love it. Uh, it's about killing. Yeah. I like books about killing. It is. Um, 
but then I also want to talk about you and your career. And sure. then if we have any time left, I, I rarely get to talk to somebody who is both an author uh, and kind of an activist sure. and yeah. live in a place where... Where it's needed? Yeah. <laughs> and where it can be tough sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'll just start with... Sure. We'll start with the book. Okay. Um, and then we'll just meander around. Yeah. Um, you've got the third issue out the door... Your very first comic book series. How do you feel? I'm feeling good. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, it is. Uh, it was always one of those kind of bucket list things that I wanted to do, um, and really never figured I would get to do it. And so it was a bit of a surprise when it happened, um, and a bit of a fluke, perhaps. But uh, I'm loving it. I, I love writing comics. Um, I've been a long time reader. Uh, I used to buy them in the grocery stores, <laughs> which kind of dates me a little bit. But um, yeah, I've been into it for a long, long time, and uh, so excited to be making them and making them with like incredibly talented people. Um, it's a bit of a, um, it's daunting because <laughs> they're so talented. Natalie Barhuna has been amazing. Um, our joke has been that I've been uh, able to say that I am the first person to be able to write for Natalie Byrhona in the marketplace. And um, we expect her to go and do some amazing stuff. So. Now, who who found her? Brian Stelfreeze found her. Uh, Brian um, has never taken on, like, protégés. Uh, and she was the first person that he kind of said, she's got it, I think I can do something with it, and... Um, and really kind of guided her. Uh, and um, when we went to Brian, the kind of story goes with this is I pitched Kevin Gardner, who's the publisher for 12 Gauge. Um, they publish a lot of image comics, and um, this was actually the first Dark Horse that we, that we did, um, that he did. And uh, we were, I think, on our way to see Captain America Civil War, or... I think it was Civil War. It might have been Winter Soldier. It's been a minute. But uh, I think it was Civil War. So basically, um, my significant other and his wife uh, just did not care at all about superhero uh, movies. How dare they? I know, right? <laughs> totally messing out. Um, so we would go and hang out, and we would always go to like this. We would go over to, I know your, your listeners won't know this, but we would go to um, the one over in River Chase, and we'd go to the Cajun Steamer over there, which is this passable <laughs> Cajun restaurant. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. Um, I like them. They're great. They're, they're super wonderful. Um, but we would go uh, do that, have a few beers, and then go to the movie. And we had had a, um, a few beers, and then a few more beers. Uh, and he was lamenting that there weren't many um, or not, not too many, um, female voices in comics. And, uh, he was looking for a, a story to tell in, uh, from the female perspective about women. And so I was like, well, I got a, I got this book and I just pitched him ridiculous. And, uh, and the first person he reached out to was Brian. And so he calls Brian and says, hey, I got this thing. What do you think? And Brian was like, 
that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm in. Um, and so he was all aboard, uh, and, um, you know, we were hoping for him to sort of guide us in... The, basically, Kevin works with a lot of the old Gaijin studio people, so Adam Hughes and um, Jason Pearson and uh, Brian Stelfreeze and um, a lot of uh, amazing artists who've come pretty much out, out of Atlanta. So... <clears throat> Brian said he, he knew somebody, and uh, and we trust Brian. <laughs> I mean, who says no to Brian Stelfreeze, right? When he says he knows a good artist, then you go with that artist. And she submitted some sequentials and some... Um, we asked her to do some takes on some characters, and what she turned in was just... It blew us away, so... We were, we were thrilled. That's where it went. <laughs> I... It's just dominoes falling, basically, is, is one lucky thing after the other. I, I think it's certainly her work is um, it's really visually stunning. And yeah. I say this as, as a words guy. And yeah. I'm like, how do I describe art properly? Yeah. Um, but the colors are just really, I mean, they're really something else. I um, it. And not too many people are out there are like brave enough to, to color their own work. And yeah. it's just, it comes off so well. Especially in transitions from night to day mm -hmm. and I, I certainly don't know where she's from you could probably tell me that or I could have done my research yeah. properly she's in Boston um but there's this one scene where you know you're transitioning into like the dusky hazy like bright and early morning and I can like I can see it like yeah. I can I can visualize myself there yeah. you know and it's just beautiful work uh, uh, she she blew us away, and her colors are, I mean, outstanding. She's, she's going places. Um, 12 Gauge is a local outfit, it is. Yeah. and I know so very little about them. Uh -huh. um, I, I know that they have typically worked with, you know, Image. Yeah. Um, what was it like to just kind of stumble into this outfit in your in your backyard? I mean, so many other times, you know, you have to basically live in Portland if you right. want to get something published. Yeah. Like, you know, we're a dark horse, we're image, mm -hmm. and you know, it's you know, you mentioned Domino's. This is this is kind of a nice one. It's just, and I hate to say this because like there's so many people out there just doing amazing work, and you know, they have uh, their hands raised to get noticed, and it's it's so hard to do that. In the marketplace, um, this was just dumb luck. I went to, um, do you remember the Alabama Phoenix Festival? No. Okay, so this this was this um, uh, really earnest attempt at a local Comic-Con, and the first year was a lot of fun. Uh, I had young adult novels out at the time, so they invited me to come speak on panels, and, and I met some really cool people there. Lou Anders, who is a local um, fantasy writer, does some Star Wars stuff. Um, and has these amazing Thrones and Bones books that are uh, middle grade novels. Met him, um, and I met Nathan Edmondson, who at the time was writing uh, Punisher, and he was a guest of Kevin Gardner, and Kevin Gardner at, had on the Artist Alley this big 12-gauge um, pavilion that was set up. And so I was just literally looking at the comic books that he had, and... Uh, and he and Nathan were talking about um, this Hollywood uh, agency that had just recently gone through this awful mer merger. It was Endeavor, which is one of the big um, Hollywood agencies out there. It was 
uh, and William Morris, which was one of the big Hollywood agents. It was basically William Morris, Endeavor, CAA, and ICM were the big four. I was represented by Endeavor at the time, and he was represented by William Morris. And I was an author. Our branches in New York. He was a. Um, they were representing all of his comic books, and they were building IP out of that. Um, and this was God. This was back in two thousand. 12, I think, maybe, 11 or 12. And William Morris Endeavor, which is the company that rose out of that merger, um, became this kind of new entity. The two, so I was represented by Endeavor, and the, uh, the William Morris branch of their literary department in New York was the stronger branch. So it kind of, my agent was put under a lot of pressure, and it became kind of harder. Um, and for some dumb reason, this is before sort of the Infinity War, Iron Man, and all that stuff that kind of um, changed everyone's perspective on comic book movies. They were just like, we're not going to represent um, comic books anymore. <laughs> and so Kevin ends up going to CAA, and I uh, left for um, uh, Diston Goddard, which was this other uh, literary agency in New York. And um, so they were talking about how miserable it was. And I just happened to overhear it. I mean, I was sitting there, and they were just like, oh, it sucks, and I hate it. And I was like, oh, let me tell you. <laughs> so I just butted into their conversation. And um, I was surprised, as anyone, to learn that Kevin and 12 Gage was local. And um, they had worked with, I think, uh, at the time, they had this Rosario Dawson comic book out, which I can't remember the name of. They had um, Body Bags, which was Jason Pearson's deal. They had all these cool things. They were working with Gail Ann Hurd. Uh, for this comic book called Anti, which was this sort of um, comic that they put out for a little bit, uh, and doing some really cool stuff. Yeah, they had uh, really Jason cool Latour before he yeah. blew up. Yeah, yeah, so um, Loose Ends and all that stuff. So, um, doing like working with some really cool people, and uh, I was blown away, and learned later that the connection that Kevin had worked in Valnet for a little while. He owned one of the only comic book stores here in Alabama for a while called, um, maybe not the only comic book store, but it was one of the bigger ones called uh, The Comic Strip. And he owned one in Auburn. And when I went to Auburn for a little bit, that was the only comic book store I went to. And so it was this weird weird kind of, um, I don't know, it was just, it was real weird. Like all these kind of things fit together and we we're like, we should know each other. Uh, and you know, just became friends, and it was cool. And, you know, we we both share a love for Auburn football. Don't hate me. <laughs> no. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the podcast uh, takes a turn. There it goes. It's over. Uh, <laughs> I know. Don't hate me. Alabama's fine. Fine? Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I'm an Auburn fan. I have to I have, to have some... some I have some feelings. <laughs> I got a I got a dadgum punch card from I Alabama. Know. I got so many degrees from that place. I uh, know. I love them. Look, the the school's amazing. Half my um, circle of friends go there and or went there, and it's amazing. I love. I'm I'm not that into it. Okay, but. fair enough. <laughs> fair fair enough. Yeah, the sports ball. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh crap! See, you, I know, you totally, I know. <laughs> totally just blew everything right, up. Oh, there we go. There we go. Sorry, I, I I remembered the point I was going to make. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked about uh, you know your agents and and uh -huh. dropping people for you know uh, the comic book authors. Yeah. 
jokes on them because you done got this you know puppy optioned. Yeah, so that was real fun. Um, after Brian called, I mean, after Kevin talked to Brian, he reached out to his agent and uh, said, "What do you think of this?" And I went, "Well, we like that." So there was interest kind of right off the bat with the idea, and then when we produced it, we've had this produced for a little bit, um, and and uh, when we had it done, when at least the first issue, uh, they looked at it and said, "There's there's something here. We can work with this." So there's been some movement behind the scenes for a long time on that, but when Hideout came in uh, and were excited about it, as they as excited as they were then it just kind of all fell into place. So it was fun. It's still fun. We're waiting for uh, the screenplay to, to, to get done, and I think that'll come in maybe around June, sometime in the summertime. So Sigrid Gilmer is writing it, who's the uh, head writer for Claws and works on a series of unfortunate events and just cool as shit. And uh, she's going to do a cool take. I'm really excited to see what she does with it. So, let's go back. Um, yeah. So you apparently spent some time at Auburn. I learned that I did. Um, <laughs> but you get undergrad from UAB. I did. Yeah. A fine institution. An amazing institution. Yes. I'm a blazer through and through. Absolutely. Um, I I joke with my friends all all the time about how I'm a lifelong supporter yeah. of UAB and Absolutely. its athletics. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, Joseph Goodman, writes for AL.com. Love him. Really good friend of mine. And the fact that he he's I think coined the Southside Dragons thing, and I, I I wish to God we had had that back in our day. I don't know why we didn't think of it. It seems so obvious, but I love that. I'm a Southside Dragon, proudly. Yeah, I, I certainly... I know of Joseph. I haven't met him. Um, obviously, I'm so connected with local journalism. Yeah. I know, like, half the people at AL.com. He's amazing. Um, you do a little bit, you say, in, in broadcast media, WBRC. I did, I did for a little bit. Yeah. What did you do for them over there? I was I just interned and worked with them for a little bit. Um, uh, for, for a couple summers. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was interesting. I had aspirations to get into film at the time. So when I was here, um, Jean Bedon, who's this, we were just talking about him, this amazing French uh, uh, he, uh, director and professor, uh, had, um, he had John Alfredson come and be an adjunct professor at one point. And uh, John Alfredson directed... Rocky got the Oscar for it for uh, best picture. Um, I don't think he got director. He might have, but he came in. He was a bitter man at the time. He came to be a professor here at UAB for a always good. I was fantastic, um, and I was interested in film and wanted to be uh, a writer and producer. And um, and but I was directing student films and doing pretty well with it, uh, and enough to to kind of catch the eye of John John and uh, and John actually. So uh, we were hanging out a lot, and um, uh, John Alverson, who at the time, and he's passed away, so um, he, he was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to write. I want to, I want to produce. And he was, he'd had a couple of Jack Daniels at the time, and he's like, well, just go to fucking law school. Every producer I know has a law degree. <laughs> I was like, 
And I was young and impressionable, so I was just like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I had not a lot of interest in the law. But I went to take the LSAT and did really well on it, so I was like, screw it. I'll just you asshole. So I ended up being a lawyer. But while I was here, I got to um, start, and they told me I started, but I'm not sure if I did or not. But there was um, a film minor that had never been done here. So I we had to go to the dean and like piecemeal together all these classes. Um, Lee Shack- Shackelford was this local screenwriter, and I don't know if he's still here or not. He was in the theater department and, and teaching a screenwriter um, class he had worked for, I think, uh, Star Trek for the next generation. I think he has a couple of credits there. And so we just kind of put together this hodgepodge bullshit minor. <laughs> and, um, but from what I understand, it like kind of took off from there and became something cool, all under Jean Bedon's steerage uh, and guidance. But um, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And so we had to have an internship in. When I was here, still do not a lot of yeah good, which is good real world experience always a good thing. There wasn't a lot of places to do that that had. I mean, you're gonna go someplace broadcasting if you're into to film and TV something. So I went to WBRC and had a blast there. It was it was cool. It was it was neat. I had the, I had the morning show though, so it was a little early. Ooh. <laughs> but they always had at the end of that um, uh, a local chef come in and make some cool dish and there's only like you know six or seven people in the studio and so they would make these huge things and um mickey ferguson who i think is still there always was cool about like making sure everybody who was interning or guesting there got some plates some good food <laughs> highly recommend it so you go to cumberland local law school uh, fine law school fine law school Expensive uh, law school. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, oh, my wife certainly knows it. Yeah. Um, and after that, you get um, a couple of um, of different gigs. Uh, I, yeah. I, I I looked at the the LinkedIn profile. Uh, I know at some point you were um, you were kind of a solo practitioner. I did. Yeah. Um, what kind of stuff did you bounce around in before you settled where you are now? Um, a little bit of family law. A lot of divorce, um, a little bit of plaintiff's work. It was uh, not enjoyable. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I, I don't know if I just didn't get great cases, but um, I mean, it was a good learning experience. But um, and it, I got a lot of court experience in it doing it, but it wasn't. And court's fun. I used to love going to court, um, but the cases just were. You know, people who are usually angry, very angry, um, or bitter, and, uh, or trying to screw somebody over. And I was like, God, I didn't, I paid a lot of money to just be somebody's henchman <laughs> to some extent for some of this shit. I, it wasn't really fulfilling. Um, and so I did bounce around a little bit, did some real estate closings too, which is fine, but uh, that's a monotonous thing to do mm. over and over and over again. Um, and if you have that sort of personality to, to, to be that, uh, it's fantastic for you because it's so easy. Uh, and then I ended up at Southern Research, which is really cool. Um, Southern Research was, uh, is, um, a life sciences and engineering firm. So they work with NIH trying to do things like cure cancer and, um, HIV or 
big work for like DOD and NASA trying to explore the universe and uh, kill people. So it's <laughs> so it's this really <laughs> diverse um, place to work uh, as far as like mission work. I mean, it's the first place to work anyway, but their corporate mission was a bit <laughs> strange. <laughs> we're going to kill some people over here, but we're also going to save secrets. It bounces out. So, yeah, balance. Uh, balance. Good sort of light side, dark side. Um, but I got to negotiate with uh, NASA and DOD and, and things like that. So it was fun. It was fun. Interesting work. But, you know. Then I ended up, uh, because I wrote a lot of grants and um, did a lot of grant writing, uh, I got the job at Birmingham AIDS Outreach. And uh, went over there and... and really doing some like mission community oriented stuff so um it's been amazing to work for them and now i'm the lgbtq lead attorney over there which is a lot of fun what kind of day-to-day work do you have over there well it's it's sort of an internalized general practice we're client facing so um we do a little grant work but the majority of um the majority of the HIV side is about removing roadblocks that sort of prevent people from housing or staying on their medication. So um, one of the big injustices that we see locally is that um, a lot of my clients have like a small possession of weed. Mm. Fine, right? So um, they're indigent to begin with and they get caught uh, can't afford the fine, so they, they don't go to court. Now they have a failure to appear. Now they have a warrant because they failed to appear. And so that restricts them from getting um, uh, housing or services or whatever. And when they're HIV positive, that's dangerous because you remove those um, pillars of support from their life and eventually treatment falls off. And so then that's bad then they become contagious or um, viral. And <clears throat> so what we try to do is keep them on their medic- medicine. Um, we support the sort of notion of undetectable equals untransmittable. So if they don't have HIV detectable in their system, they can't transmit it, it can't be a problem. Um, and so we support, uh, we have social workers, we have food boxes, we have connections to um, housing, we have our legal services, uh, and all sorts of support to support people who, who need it. Um, recently we had, uh, we partnered up with Elton John Foundation to do the LGBTQ legal program, and that removes the HIV uh, requirement to get services, whereas before you had to have HIV to get these sort of Ryan White-funded services that, that we'd all offer. Um, but what we were seeing was a lot of people who needed legal services who didn't have money to pay a lawyer uh, who identified on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. So that's what we do. Um, and it's, it's a really kind of interesting thing. The cases we see are, uh, are your normal kind of cases. There are some divorce, there's, uh, you know, housing issues, um, employment issues, uh, things like that. Um, unfortunately, as you, I'm sure you know, the housing and employment are, are public accommodations and Title Seven stuff. So, so Title Two, Title Seven, 
those are, are the cases that are basically in front of the Supreme Court right now that we're waiting for with bated breath to see how they're going to, um, to rule. Uh, and it's problematic in a state like Alabama who doesn't have um, state non-discrimination uh, laws on the books. So, whereas EOC used to sort of support these things as, as a matter of policy under an executive order that uh, Obama did, those things are gone. So they're supporting it up to the top decision, and then they're they're not supporting it. So it's it's a bit of a problem for um, our clients uh, in the state. So it's you know we work with local government, which which has been pretty good. Um, where we can and work with policies with judges where we can. Um, we do a lot of micro uh, advocacy, which is like judge to ju- judge to attorney. I mean, we can't you know go down to the legislature and tell them what's what because <laughs> you know I'm not that person to do that. Uh, but that's not working anyway. So we you know. We work with local probate courts to say, hey, here's, you know, a trans name change is, should go through for these reasons. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's working pretty well. Uh, we find individual judges are pretty reasonable. At the macro level, it's it's a bit crazy. But that's kind of what we do, more or less. If, if I had to address the Alabama legislature in the aggregate, I do not know if I could, like... Constrain my content. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the two class of people that I loathe most on the planet, high school administrators <laughs> and yeah. state legislators. Yeah. I just, they, they're like professional clowns. And, and they're not even funny. They're like funny in like a, a bad, mean, spiteful way. What is the deal with high school? A good friend of mine, Andrew Smith, who's a novelist, a young, young adult novelist, has done really well. He works in a, um, in a high school. He's a teacher there. If you just follow him on Twitter, like every other tweet is like, fuck the administration, they're killing me. These idiots. I, I'm removed from this, so I have no idea how well, my uh, my dissertation was in student speech, okay, uh, like K through twelve student speech right. cases, and they're just so they're so asinine yeah. and so dictatorial, and and there's just so much deference from the courts. So it's like it's a playground in the K through twelve arena for yeah. administrators to troll social media, uh, to to micromanage student speech and you know everything like dress codes, just like everything they do, just. Just bothers me right. on a fundamental level. Right, right, right. But that's me and my problems. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned like basically not being able to work with the state with the state government. Yeah. Um, what other differences do you see in maybe working with your clients in Birmingham as opposed to maybe working with the same sort of clients in like Atlanta or other urban areas? Um. <clears throat> Well, in other areas that have um, LGBTQ protections, there's you have grounds for a cause of action. Um, so, I mean, it depends on the law, obviously, but um, one of the restrictions for EOC claims are that uh, you have to have 15 people who work at the place. It's, you know, this whole thing, There's there are these check marks that you have to... to 
to have before you can even bring a cause of action in the EEOC. If you have a law that um, isn't restricted to the same sort of parameters that the EEOC is, and, and some of them are, but if, if it doesn't, if it just says, or if, or if you fall under a Title VII um, uh, you know, discrimination, if you can't discriminate against somebody for their identity, uh, whether that's um, sexual orientation or gender, then, um, then you can't discriminate against them, right? So <clears throat> those states that do have protection have um, a cause of action to bring. In Alabama, we don't have that. And um, so if you work at a place that has five employees and your boss comes to you and says, you're fired because we don't like you're gay, um, or you're showing up to work and you're a cisgender woman and you're showing up to work kind of looking a little bit like uh, a guy, we don't like that, or you're, you're dressing not very female, you're fired. Um, that's problematic. Uh, and there are no causes of action because it's an at-will state, and you can do that. Good reason, bad reason, no reason at all. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so what it does is it offers protections to, um, to people who don't have them. And just from a legal perspective, uh, corporations tend to model their in-house policies to reflect risk that exists in the real world. So an Alabama company who has to worry about an Alabama law of discrimination, their policies are going to reflect that and be better. So it's going to be baked into the pie to some extent. Um, you would see that more often, more often. Um, so it just corporate environments are better in other states where these things exist. It's, it, you know, the differences are almost infinite, though. I mean, it... it it's one of those things that um, that's real troublesome where it doesn't exist. How do you basically cope with that on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, <clears throat> I work at an LGBTQ <laughs> company, so I don't have to. Um, oh, no, no, I, I mean, yeah. not, not certainly at the you know, where you work, but I mean, just basically all of this. Yeah, <laughs> so... It's, it sucks sometimes. Um, the good news is is that outside of um, those protections existing, a lot of businesses recognize that it's not a cool thing to do and that it ultimately hurts their business to be um, discriminatory in any, in any capacity. So um, it's happening, it, but it, um, it's happening, but it isn't. The protection that's needed so it's dissuasive I guess to, to, to people to be jerks but you know where a company's policy has a non-discrimination policy and then there's no foundation for protection in the law then some racist or not racist because racist is actually protection but somebody who is a bigot towards you know somebody who's gay or, or trans can't do that and then just say oh no, no I fired them because of uh, performance uh, and so it, you know, coping with it, you just sort of, you, you fight. I mean, that's kind of what you do. You try and change minds and you fight and, uh, and, you know, distract yourself with creative pursuits.
Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, how did you begin your creative pursuits? I know uh, you mentioned earlier you, you started with some, yeah. some young adult books. I did. At, at what point did that start? And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just take it from there. So I went to law school and did one of those study abroad deals. Uh, I don't know if your wife did one of those, but we went to Durham, England. <clears throat> and I'm, you know, when I was in my teens, we would write and draw our own comic books. Um, I am not an artist. So, those have been destroyed by time, thank God. <laughs> um, and they're always, for whatever reason, I used to love the Punisher when I was a kid, but um, they, they're they all always like these Punisher slash X-Men, uh, you know, copycat, horrible, pencil-drawn things that we would staple the spines and fold them. I was doing this in my teens, so I was not a cool kid. <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> Lived in England for a little bit, studying abroad, um, and law school has this ability to sort of, it's a very um, black and white, cut and dry environment. It's statutory law, Mm -hmm. right? It's that thing. It is or it isn't, and then you kind of argue a little bit, but there's not a lot of creative opportunity for expression of, you know, and I can, I'm already hearing in my head a million attorneys are it is creative and it's a very creative thing and we, we argue creatively in bubble yes that's true but it's not inventive it's mm. not creative in, in, a, in an artistic way you, you don't get to be flowery in a brief right and if you have that side of your personality that that exists and struggles to get out then law school can be a pressure cooker on that and at some point it just kind of explodes out of you I think um, we had a lot of musicians and you know things like that in our law school who had bands on the side that they had to express that um i was, lived in england came home and had this story that i was just thunderstruck with um and so i, I wrote it and uh i was like i don't know what to do here <laughs> so i googled you know how do you get published and they're like you need an agent i was like okay um so I wrote a query letter and sent it out uh, to a couple people, and one of them came back and they're like, "I want this," and it was it was that lucky. <laughs> I just hit something at the right time and um, got the agent, the one at Endeavor, uh, and uh, we struggled for a little bit. Didn't get published while I was at Endeavor. And when I left to go to Dustin Goddard, my new agent John Rudolph um, got it sold. Sold it. And it was published, and that's it. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it was. It, I get. I get. You know, grief from people because it was a pretty easy, like stupid luck. Like you're supposed to bumbling. suffer for years. I didn't. I was bumbling in the dark and ran into the jackpot. I don't know how it happened, but um, mixed metaphors there. But yeah, <laughs> we'll clean it up in post. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um. So you're you're writing these young adult fantasy novels, right? Yeah. And you basically, from what I've read in your other interviews, you you sort of took a break to write the book that is eventually would become uh, Kill Whitey Donovan. Yeah. Um, why switch from fantasy to this sort of historical fiction? Well, it was so the Gabriel Adam books are are fantastical but they're urban fantasy oh, okay. so they're it's like um a cross between my agent pitched it as probably 
a lot of agents were pitching at the time. It was like a cross between Da Vinci Code and Harry Potter, but an older Harry Potter. So it was like this kid who, you know, they're, they're kind of going through this historical um, mystery of sorts, and he has powers. Uh, he's an archangel. Um, so, you know, I, I like that stuff. It's fun to write, uh, but I didn't want to be like, I don't know. I, the ideas come to me, and I, I really don't have a lot of control. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to figure out a way I can take credit for something I don't, I don't quite understand. But, like, um, the Gabriel Adam thing came out of the blue. Uh, the Kill Whitey thing came out of the blue. It was just like, oh, this would be cool if, you know, this happened, this happened. I don't know if I was reading something at the time or whatever. The Gabriel Adam stuff, I was going through, like, this um, religious crisis. I was raised Baptist and, and you know, very... My parents are very uh, religious, and I was like, mm, I don't know if this feels good, uh, or feels feels right for me. And uh, and so I started doing like a bunch of research into non-canonical and historical, and you know things like that, uh, with relation to how religion was formed and like the Constantine empires and all that stuff. Um, Irenaeus, uh, uh, Bishop of Lyon. Um, anyway, so the story just kind of arose out of that, but I do love history. And, um, I was probably, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was probably reading something at the time about the Civil War. And at the time, what, when it came to fruition, when I wrote the book, it, the book is more modeled after Dante's Inferno than, um, than the comic book is, but it's a little bit reflective, mm -hmm. uh, I think, the, the sort of descent into hell, um, both internal and external to the main characters. But, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know why I switched. Probably as a palate cleanser, it seemed like the, the furthest thing from... That's kind of how my brain works, I guess. I get tired of something and it switches to something on the opposite end of the spectrum. A lot of Freudian stuff going on with that statement, I realize. <laughs> I'm just going to skip over that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I don't know. It just kind of popped into mind. It's not the only thing that, that I have sitting in my box of books. Gabriel Adam was the first thing that I ever wrote. But I have two or three books that are not published that I've written since then that, that have kind of gone out or not sold or, or uh, haven't sold yet. So we're still sort of in that vein of pursuit <laughs> for some things. But um, if you look at, at them individually, uh, they make sense probably in relation to me. But if you look at them in a whole and together, they're ridiculous. Um, you originally from Alabama? Uh, yeah, I was pretty much raised here. I, I was born in Georgia, I lived in Florida as a kid, um, and then, uh, I mean, like, young kid, like two, I think we left in two, two or three, maybe four, moved up here, yeah, grew up in Birmingham. So, obviously, you know, if not in Alabama, but certainly the South. Oh, yeah. Um... Were you worried at all when you started in this book? Like, I know if I tried to touch something Civil War, like, I know, like, deep down in the back of my brain, there is some lost cause bullshit just floating around, ready yeah. to bubble up. Like, uh, we... Our, our education down here isn't great. No, um, it's not. So how did, how did you sort of reckon with that? And, like, what was your kind of trepidation as you started to kind of poke around in this? We were incredibly concerned about a lot of it and we weren't the only ones we had other partners and who uh 
I was new to the scene. I was a new writer in comics, uh, not yet worthy of anyone's trust. But there were a lot of people who looked at it um, and said, this is problematic for reasons X, Y, or Z. Um, Brian Selfridge was like, you know, it was just originally called Kill By Me. <laughs> so, which I, uh, I pushed real hard to, to keep that. Um, but uh, Brian's like, you know, that's, that's going to be a problem. We, <laughs> we can just pretend, We're, right? Yeah, he's like, we need, to, we need to somehow take the edge off that uh, in some capacity. So we, we added the Donovan. Um, but there were some things that were, um, for people who weren't familiar with the South or did not, um, weren't familiar with the Civil War, you know, some of it's hard, right? Uh, and, and I've always been under the um, the impression that as a white person, uh, one thing that is uh, the worst that you can do in this kind of stuff is to um, turn away from it or, or gloss over it as something that wasn't as hor- horrible. And we didn't want to tell, like, you know, a story that was... Um, we, we did want a fun story, right? I mean, mm. we wanted to address some of these things and and acknowledge them and then uh, and try and get, you know, some truth out of it. But um, we did, you know, we didn't want an issue book. We didn't want, like, you know, that kind of thing. So we 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 spoke truth to it in, in a way that we thought was appropriate and then, um, and then we're respectful of it. And we think we did that. Uh, we have been getting feedback from people who have reviewed it and said, you know, this, this is hard. Some of it's hard to look at. Some of it's hard to read. Some of it's hard to acknowledge. And it has been handled with some respect. We had Jason Pearson and um, Brian Stelfries, both black men who agreed. You know, they were sort of our, they were very much people who got, especially Brian, they were, you know, they said, this is, this is right for us to tell. This is the thing that should be said and the way we should say it. And this is the right way to do it. So, um, yeah, we were worried about, especially in the comic book community right now. And these things were coming together as like Comics Gate was, was really sort of blowing up. And, and you know, I was having to look at people like, Magdalene Visaggio, who's getting a lot of grief for being who she is, just for being who she is, not for the work she's doing. Um, Tamara Bondolin, uh, you know, these people who were just really, Heather Antos, any any woman, basically, in mm. comics, at, at, to be honest with you. And we were like, we, this book will invite that to us. And, um, you know, those women weather that storm I think in a way that by the time our book came out, I didn't and have not had to yet and really have not had the blowback that we were expecting. Um, and we were confident in what we were doing, the story we were telling. So we weren't like too worried about it, but we were just sort of clenched with the expectation that something was going to come and that we would have to deal with something. And honestly, it hasn't. We have not dealt with that at all. And that's to the, the credit of the people who kind of came before me that had to, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, we acknowledged it, that it might be a thing, 
and stayed true to the story we wanted to tell. And I think really that's all you can do. Um, I don't I don't particularly like, um, you know, <clears throat> not being truthful to the to the stories that you want to tell, or or being um, constrained by fear of what um, somebody who's got big big notions of the world <laughs> or narrow notions of the world um, would have you do. So I I think. I felt like we did the right thing. It worked out, and we're happy. And and you certainly can't. You you talked about writing basically afraid. You can't write of in hopes of not, you know, drawing the ire or you know bringing down the comics gate folks on your head because they're basically not operating in reality. They're right. not operating with the same sort of facts that we are. So Correct. who knows what's going to set those people off? Yeah. And they're, um, you know, they're just, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to, I, I'm just so glad I didn't have to, to deal with it too much. And, and, and what we did, it was, um, it was, I'm lucky, I guess. Or maybe they're just times over. I don't know. I think things just. Well, they, they have moved on to grifting on like Kickstarter. Oh, okay. that, I think that's their thing well, now. More power to them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, they're, they're just scamming their own community. So, yeah. you know, it's all, it's kind of, it's quarantined off. Right. We don't have to worry about it. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that I've, I've sort of tracked in the first three issues, talking about, like, stereotypes and things, it's like, your character, Hattie, is basically able to wear the... The, like the the gone with the wind slave stereotype as a mask. Yeah. And put it on and take it off for yeah. her convenience. And I don't think I had ever seen that before or done as crisply or as cleverly in certainly a comic. But yeah. I thought this has been really interesting. Yeah. So, um, absolutely. I mean, people survive in the way that they need to survive. Um, and that was. Um, in my research, that came up. Uh, that's not something I invented. Um, it existed. So, uh, and they had to, right? I mean, I, it, it's it's um, it's awful. Uh, but that's kind of you know they people had to do things like that too to survive. Um, you know, so that is, that is something that we want to do. Uh, and and the characters have. Um, you know, Hattie's got more of an understanding of herself than Anna does. <clears throat> uh, and the weird thing is is that she's not been able to express that in the world. Anna doesn't understand herself, and she's been required to express herself in a way that people think they understand her. So it's this weird sort of um, dynamic between the two. They're, they're kind of going in different directions. Um, and that's one of the things that, Anna, that Hattie does to... to just to exist, right? I mean, that's that's the thing that she has to do to, to make sure that, that people don't find her a threat. And, um, and uh, they're both kind of coming to terms, which is re the real structure of the story is how they're coming to terms with who they are uh, versus what they are, right? So it's a very much a story about identity. Um, 
and they're kind of figuring that out. And it's all, all of it is defined, each story, each, each um, trajectory is defined by the trauma that they've endured. And so that's kind of what the throwbacks are, the flashbacks are. They're, they're always de demonstrating some degree of trauma. And, you know, and I'm not just talking about like, you know, harsh things, but just environmental trauma or, um, you know, the, the stuff that they had to endure. Uh, so that's kind of what Kill Whitey Donovan is about. Um, that ex internal acceptance of, of the things that they are and what they are and who they are uh, versus how the world sees them and how they've been expected to be. So uh, that's, yeah. Uh, and I appreciate you noticing that because that was one of the things that we were worried about to some extent. We're like, are people going to get that? Um, because, you know, a lot of ways that can go wrong, right? I mean, that can be very offensive if isolated and pulled out of context. It, it is very offensive. I mean, that's kind of the point. Um, those ex expectations of her to be that is what is offensive. But that's what it was. That that's history. Um, but that is one of the things that we were like, Ooh. <laughs> I hope our readers get it, and they did. I, I think your lettering really helps there. Yeah, um, Tony. Because if I remember correctly, like yeah. those are bits that are, are, for lack of a better characterization, italicized. Like this is distinct and different, and this should set a flag to you, the reader. Yeah. This something else is going on yeah. here. Yeah. And I, I think that was a good visual cue. Yeah. Uh, Tony Pateri's been great. He's he's been um, probably the MVP of this thing <laughs> because uh, I'm indecisive sometimes with the words that I put on page. So I was always like, "Can we change this? Can we change this? Can we change this?" Um, at, at a very late hour <laughs> too, so putting the work over and over again. But and, and I know this is going to sound a little patronizing, and it is because I'm a jerk. Um, I don't know a better way to phrase it, but. Um, another great thing about the book is that there's not a whole lot of words. Yeah. Very good job. Well, thank you. <laughs> Novelist. <laughs> um, that is not how the first draft was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, so, honest to God, um, I had written a first draft, uh, and, uh, I, I think... Easily writing comic books is more difficult than writing a novel, mm. just because the constraints and the, the, the structure of it um, for a writer. So when Natalie started giving us stuff, saying, here's what I think, it, it was readily apparent that she was a storyteller and that I could rely on her to tell a lot of the story. Um, and so we just kind of had this instantaneous trust. I was like, well, here's, here's what I think. And you run with it, and you do what you think. And uh, and she came back and just kind of knocked it out of the park every time we asked her to 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 involve herself in that in that sort of storytelling process. Um, so we pulled back a lot. I pulled back a lot of the the stuff that I had um, originally intended, and just let her tell the story, and she she nailed it. Um, but yeah, I, I I think her visuals allowed me to do that. Her talent allowed me to do that. Um, allow us to do that. So, um, I try not to do, I like, I like it, I like a good visual. You know? I know, right? It doesn't need to be 
all, with all my stuff in there. And it, it just, I don't know. That's, I think that's the, the brilliance of comic books is that it can tell so much more with outward sometimes than it can with, so. And yet you still get writers who are like, here's a paragraph. Yeah. Here's this paragraph. Yeah. Um, one other point I want to make on the book, and then we'll, we'll see if we can wrap this up, because uh, I know that somebody's getting a little antsy. <laughs> but that's all right. That's all right. I'm antsy, too. Um, the letter. I think that that has been a really interesting device in the book yeah, because yeah. instead of setting up exactly what uh, that bastard Whitey did uh-huh. in the beginning, you just see it kind of play out in all these all of these issues, and you have different characters react to the letter. And yeah. I'm like, I want to know what's in the letter. I want to right. see the letter. So somebody uh, that was just a, a I don't know why I did that, but somebody the other day said, you know, it's the, it's the glowing thing in the briefcase. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> like, yeah, um, it is. It's just because what the reason why I did it that way was simply because I didn't want to tell you who Whitey Donovan was. I wanted to show you in the expressions of people who were coming to learn of, about what he did. Um, and that's just I think a more effective way to do it. Uh, uh, the mystery of, of who he is. I mean, we, we know who he's going to be, right? I mean, it's, A corpse, I hope. It's no big surprise. He's going to be this big asshole. And that, you know, that's, that's where that goes. But, you know, the character of Juanny Donovan isn't that interesting. His actions are what has been interesting about him. So, what you need to know about that is how people react to that. And that's what conveys who he is. And so the letter device was just a really easy way to do that. So it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it was a lot of, you know, discussion about that and how much the letter should we show and what should we put in it and da da da, da. And I was like, nothing. It should be nothing. Just they sh- you'll know it. You'll get it. You'll get it. You'll you'll know who he is. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah. Uh anything else to talk about with uh with Kill Whitey. That's what I'm going to call it now. Yeah. The hell with everybody else. Yeah, screw that Donovan guy. Um, yeah, we're, we're just excited. I think uh, issue four is going to blow you away. I think... Um, I was worried about it because like you said, I'm not showing you a lot of things in, in issue one and two. And I'm not going to show you a lot of stuff in issue four. But, um, but I think readers have kind of come along a little bit. Issue four is kind of our big... You know, episode nine, Game of Thrones kind of thing. It's 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 a lot of it was a lot of fun, and Natalie killed it on on that one too. So we're we're excited. So, final couple of questions. Um, you live here. I do. Your experience is a lot different than mine, um, as both a parent and uh, as a trans woman. Um, what are we going to do about this place? Birmingham? I'm in, like, the state. Oh, God. The whole place. I'm not going to get a wall around Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham's okay. I, you know, it's it's got a litany of problems that are generational, and, and, uh, and absolutely we need to... I think they're, they're, start, they're getting addressed. I don't know if they are or not, but it feels that... My experience is that Birmingham's okay-ish right now. It's getting better. 
It's better than it was 10 years ago. That, that much I know for certain. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's concerning every day. I'm almost unplugging from politics at this point just because it's so depressing. But, um, I don't know. I think you just, you just hope, you hope it's better and you, you do good where you can do good. And if that's in front of a classroom teaching it and, uh, or, you know, in court with a judge or telling your racist uncle not to be racist or whatever it is. I mean, just these sort of, I think things get better when they're, you know, when you can't affect the macro, see what you can do about the micro and, and be a little bit of good change in the day in your everyday world and I don't know maybe maybe things will get better ultimately maybe the FCC will pull Fox News's license <laughs> <laughs> I don't know we, we can know. all we can all hope right yeah we do well 52% of us can hope <laughs> so um what's what's your hot take on the uh, the Alabama Senate race um well it's it's a uh about as gross as it can get right now. Um, <laughs> I, I concur on that. Bradley Byrne is that who's winning right now. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not too informed of it, and every time I, I, I tune in to, to see what these candidates are up to, it's disgusting. I think Doug Jones is going to lose, unfortunately. Um, presidential election kind of assures that that's going to happen, but I don't know. We've been here before. <laughs> It's familiar to territory. Yeah, right. The yeah. Uh, the experience of the Alabama liberal. Yeah. Uh, so you just hold on. I hope for the best. Anything else we want to talk about? Uh, no. Hopefully, we got some new stuff coming out. Um, I'll be in uh, Seattle next month. Emerald City Emerald Comic City Con. Comic Con. Yeah. So we got some stuff in the works. Hopefully, some new books inbound, but. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to write some comics. That, that's, yeah. that's, your, that's your thing now? That's my thing now. I'm loving it. I'm having a blast with it. It's a lot of fun. It sustains my ego, the month-to-month thing, so that's kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. I love, the, I love the creators that I've met. The community around making comics has been the best part of it, so I want that to continue. We'll see. Well, I could certainly pick your brain for another hour, but I, I think we got to leave it there because well, I got class in twenty minutes. Oh no! Yeah, and you guys got to eat lunch. Yeah, we're gonna but, do that. But thank you so much. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. This is fun. Again, I I thought it was a a heck of a conversation and one that I I really enjoyed and one that I hope to get a chance to revisit and ask those two questions that I sure as hell meant to get to, but I forgot. Okay, we are in the home stretch. Coming up in our final thought, the D block. What the fuck is wrong with Ted Cruz in the Alabama legislature? Up next, here on the Breezeway. More after this break.
one thing for me, Polly. One thing to make it all work. I need you to go to WMQcomics.com. Look for the box on the right side of the page. And put in your email address to sign up for the weekly newsletter. It's one email every Friday that gives you the highlights of the week and a piping hot editorial from our maid man, Daniel. It's going to be the best thing in your inbox all week, Polly. Just like that nice gabagoo we used to get from the corner store. go home time here on the breezeway but first our final thought as i was talking with sydney i exposed my two greatest hatreds in this world state legislators and high school administrators and i stand by those remarks because they are people who just don't get it either willfully or they don't get it as some part of a tactical positioning and i i just hate them i hate them all i hate them uniformly uh, except for the the few exceptions who are actually trying to do good in this world so let's talk about alabama democrat state representative rolanda hollis She has filed a bill in the legislature that says every man, once he turns 50 or after his third child, must undergo a vasectomy. Now, the point of this bill is to point out the hypocrisy in trying to legislate abortion access or, as Bradley Burns so nakedly said in his ad from earlier to ban abortion altogether. It's awful. I agree. Hypocrisy is bad. I certainly agree with that. But my issue with with this here is that you should not file bills. You should not write legislation just to be coy. You should not write a bill that has absolutely no pa- uh, no chance of passing just to make some ironic point. And so that's where Representative Hollis and I would, would disagree. But certainly, I agree with her point. We should not be legislating abortion access. Now, that's one thing. Human piece of shit... Ted Cruz, however, 
has certainly learned about this thing. And so he tweets, quote, Yikes! A government big enough to give you everything is big enough to take everything, dot, 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 literally, exclamation point. And then he gives a link to our local fake news outlet with a story on Hollis's bill. So here's my confusion. I can't tell if Ted Cruz is really this stupid. And I want to say that he's not, right? Because who who would be this stupid? Who would be dumb enough to look at this legislation and read it on its face um, to be the thing that it purports to be? I, I, I don't know. But Ted Cruz is a literal piece of shit. And... Maybe he is that dumb. I would hope he's not. But my point stands that we should not draft legislation simply for the point of calling out hypocrisy. Don't, don't, don't play these sorts of games. And that, that goes for everybody across all political spectrums. Like, you know, your constituencies elected you to pass legislation to make lives better across the board for everyone, not just to score silly political points with, again, nothing that has a chance of passing. And even if even if it was to pass, it's not something that you want, right? <sighs> Fuck Ted Cruz. Fuck anyone trying to limit abortion rights in this country. Um, I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of all of it. But it's not going to get any better, obviously. Anyway, that's the breezeway for February. I appreciate you stopping by. I appreciate you shooting the shit with me. Thanks for listening. Thanks to... Sydney Duncan for sitting down with me. I look forward to issues four and five of Kill Whitey, parentheses Donovan, and I certainly look forward to whatever else she's got coming up in her comics career. I think it's going to be a long one. I think it's going to be a good one. So, until next month, I'll see you out here on the breezeway. Take care. <laughs>